Thanks for listening to This Blew Up. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like 22 Goals, a history of the Men's World Cup, told through the lens of 22 of the most memorable goals ever scored in the tournament. Part modern history lesson, part personal essay, and part sports euphoria, a full-service podcast. Or, if you can't get enough of my voice, check out Boom Bust HQ Trivia. You'll hear me investigate the rise and fall of the ultra-viral trivia app, HQ Trivia, and learn a few things about our attention economy along the way. We like making shows for you here at The Ringer, and we like you. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. When we left off with Leslie Golden, it was early 2020, and she had big plans for the new influencer collective she joined. I felt like this was a really good opportunity to give some like genuinely sweet, hardworking girls like a chance to show their personality and show all the work that goes into being an Instagram model. She and her other influencer pals were calling it ClickHouse, and it was a great space for doing collabs and making connections in the social media scene. Even if she was skeptical about the guy who was funding the project, an ambitious real estate mogul named Amir Ben-Yohanan. But she couldn't pass up an opportunity to build her follower count, so she decided to stick it out and see if this was her ticket to influencer fame, or at least some sense of financial security. Leslie was pinning her hopes on the promises of a collab house, And in that way, she was becoming part of a much bigger story. The story of how influencer collectives came about, how they became on-ramps into Hollywood for a bunch of young entertainers, and the ways they evolved in the TikTok era to prop up the creator economy. And to understand what Leslie and Amir were creating at ClickHouse, I have to tell you the bigger story of how collab houses became a major part of the influencer economy. So, uh, grab your ring light, bestie. We're going house hopping. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak, and you're listening to This Blew Up. Let's start with the most infamous collab house of all time, a little group called Team 10. It's every day, bro, with the Disney Channel flow. Five mil on YouTube in six months, never done. All the competition, man. PewDiePie is next, man. I'm popping all these checks. Got the brand new 
2010 was the invention of Jake Paul, a reckless daredevil kid who turned being a reckless daredevil kid into a multi-million dollar brand. He and his older brother Logan first blew up on the video sharing app Vine, planted their roots in Hollywood, and then shortly thereafter pivoted to YouTube. By the time Jake was 19, he had an audience of millions, a minor role on the Disney show Bizardvark, and per that music video you heard, he was vlogging every day. This was in 2016, around the same time a lot of influencers were joining forces, sometimes on loosely organized summer tours across the country, sometimes under the roof of an L.A. rental. Teenage dreamboats and gamers alike saw that doing this meant they could expand their audiences and foster a creative community. But Jake saw this trend, and knowing the value of the clout he'd built up, decided to supercharge it. The elevator pitch was a social media label. That's Mylin Nguyen. She coordinated Team Tent's production and ran its online accounts, mostly from the garage of the group's six-bedroom house in West Hollywood, where these influencers lived and filmed their content. So Jake was giving the same way that record labels give artists. He was giving his resources to these creators as long as they were making content. And then he would take a cut of it to like pay for those resources. In theory, what she's describing sounds like it could be a legit business model. In practice, and especially under the supervision of Jake, it was an absolute shit show. To me, it just felt like kids stacked up in a trench coat. My first day on the job, I opened the door to what I would later find out is Erica Costell's bedroom, and there was a kangaroo inside. One day, I'd take off my headphones and turn around, and they're like baby goats running around. There are times where I've been shooting a video, and then Jake just busts through the front door on a dirt bike and, like, rips it through the house. There was one where he was jumping on a trampoline suspended from a helicopter flying over the ocean. That took a little more planning. On top of all of these stunts, the chaotic relationships between house members made Team 10 a constant topic of internet gossip. People wanted to know what was up when someone left the house or the lowdown on Jake's rocky romantic relationships with other female residents. And this online fascination with Team 10's YouTube channels spilled out into real life too. Footage from the paparazzi outlet, The Hollywood Fix, showed young kids and their parents congregating outside the group's house, screaming and singing Jake's signature song, It's Every Day Bro. Eventually, all of Jake's antics caught up to him and earned him a reputation as some kind of incarnate Chucky doll, a living, vaping product of an algorithm that prioritized engagement above all else. And he would also later be accused of much more serious offenses, including exploiting his young employees slash tenants and sexually assaulting two young women. Paul denies both of their allegations. But before the worst of Jake's reign, he walked into a camera store and met someone who'd end up being a crucial figure in the next stage of the content house movement, a guy named Thomas Petru. Good morning, my original Petru family, and good morning to my new Petru family. Guys, we have- This was 2017, and Thomas was a 19-year-old social media dude who was trying to break into the YouTube scene while running food deliveries to pay the bills. He introduced himself to Jake in that camera store and told him he'd been posting vlogs every day for over a year. And since posting every day was very much Jake's thing, he invited Thomas over to the Team 10 house. He meets this kid who, like, doesn't really have an audience. 
and sees that even though he doesn't have that many eyes on him, he's still putting out content every single day. So Jake is like, I need to make an example of this kid and invite him over to the Team 10 house. Each time Thomas dropped by, he'd film scraps of Jake's crazy life, put them in his own vlog, and his audience would grow. He saw how Team 10 ran and how the spectacle around it could be a valuable marketing tool. Eventually, he even picked up some work as Jake's videographer. But Team 10, as we've established, was not the most stable workplace, and it was slowly disintegrating. In the summer of 2019, Thomas lost his job. And not long after that, the collective petered out. But Thomas's departure came at a moment when engagement was shifting in the world of social media. The next generation was coming of age, and they were using TikTok, not YouTube, to express themselves. And because it was relatively new, and none of the app's superstars had yet to be christened, it was easier to go viral there. So Thomas pivoted. He ended his three-year YouTube vlogging streak and started experimenting on TikTok. There was a noticeable difference between his content on the two platforms. On YouTube, he was a sociable tour guide, leading viewers through the rhythm of his day in 10-minute spurts. But on TikTok, he played the role of heartthrob, flirting and lip-syncing to pop music in punchy 15-second clips. I'm going to share something that I do every night with you guys that is always a horrible mistake. Did anyone else download this app as like a joke and then is now super addicted to it? And not only that, it's like the best social media platform. It's like the new Vine. It's hilarious. Just me? Okay. Thomas wasn't just messing around on the app. He was building connections to wrangle his own super group of up-and-coming TikTokers. He linked up with a guy named Chase Hudson, an emo heartthrob who wore black nail polish and called himself Lil Huddy on TikTok. These days, post-puberty, he's just Huddy. There was also a skater guy who did amateur stunts with his close friends, kind of like a low-budget jackass. And also the skater guy's girlfriend, who had earned her own legion of fans. They were a social media power couple. And then there was Daisy Peach. What's up, guys? Welcome back to my channel. If you're new here, I'm Daisy. Today, I wanted to show you one of my favorite workouts. This is really just gonna like give you a nice round booty. Daisy was a fitness influencer who Thomas had befriended at Team 10. She was famous on YouTube and Instagram for her butt workout videos and, well, also her butt. Whether you were attracted to her or wanted to look like her, she was good at getting people's attention and keeping it. Together, this core group was kind of like a breakfast club for the social media era. They all filled some standard roles proven to appeal to internet natives, albeit very normie straight white ones. There was the band of raucous dudes who jump around and break stuff, the tortured soft boy, the relatable couple, and the hourglass blonde with the backbreaking fitness program. As Thomas later explained in a now-deleted YouTube video, he was simply bringing everyone together for friendship and fun. The whole point of leading into this house, the whole thing that I had when I was starting it was that I didn't want to do contracts. I didn't want to take a percentage of anybody. I just wanted to be around the people that I love the most and to have the best friend vibe we could so that it felt very real off and on camera, which is what we did. Look, I'll buy that one part of this was just about vibing out with friends. But whether or not Thomas or Jake Paul really knew it, they had modeled their collectives after a long history of thrifty entertainment industry policies something early Hollywood studios called the star system. 
The star system came about post-World War I, during an era of entertainment when studios who'd survived the stock market crash were looking to cut costs and maximize profit. Not only did they consolidate the basic elements of movie making, that is, production, distribution, and publicity, they also tightened their grip on talent through exclusive contracts. These agreements exploited young, unknown actors who were looking to build their careers while rewarding big stars with lucrative salaries. They also gave studios the power to typecast actors and manipulate their public image in the name of selling movie tickets. Their rebranding efforts were so total that they often began with a whitewashing name. Norma Jean Mortensen became Marilyn Monroe. Roy Scherer became Rock Hudson. And on and on. Many of them even had to adhere to strict morality clauses. And studio publicists would arrange for their actors to dine out together in public as a way of creating buzz and feeding the ravenous Hollywood tabloids. All of this benefited the studios. The more famous their stars became, the more people would go see the movies they started. Content houses were doing the same thing on a smaller scale. A few giant social media companies might have controlled the platforms that distributed their posts, but they could still maximize their own cut by bringing together promising creators under one roof, giving them some support, and creating a little media circus in the process. That November, Thomas and his new friends pieced together a $46,000 deposit and secured a cheesy Mediterranean-style mansion in Encino. It became a signature set for their videos, but also a powerful recruitment tool. Major TikTokers they were courting could simply swing by while they were in town, do a few collabs in the name of the Holy Father that is content, and hear their pitch. Among the most famous of those candidates was Charlie D'Amelio, a 15-year-old dancer from Connecticut. Hi, it's Charlie, and welcome to my vlog. Her simple choreographed videos and girl-next-door personality had somewhat inexplicably earned her 5 million followers on TikTok in just a few months. Her older sister, who had become famous on the platform by association, came with. There was also Addison Ray, a smiley Southern belle who'd recently hit a million followers. Hola! And y'all, a little update. We are packing right now to go to New York City! She joined after dropping out of Louisiana State to pursue a career in entertainment. Thomas kept tagging other creators on until the group hovered around 20 members. All combined, he estimated that their followers totaled 150 million people. Not all of the members lived there, but that didn't matter. Lending their name, likeness, and an occasional post to the cause was enough to bolster the group's promotional power. In a few short weeks, they'd assembled what was essentially a giant megaphone, one that rivaled the reach and production of a digital media company. They'd also landed on their name, Hype House. On December 19th, 2019, they finally announced their collective and unleashed a fire hose of TikToks, filling up people's feeds with dance videos and skits. As Thomas later explained on a podcast called Dropouts, it was an instant success. When we started it, I was like, I joked around with everyone. I was like, if it doesn't hit a million followers in a day, we're doing something wrong. And everyone was just like, ah, ha, ha, okay. And then we hit like 1.4 overnight. Soon after, expert technology reporter Taylor Lorenz visited the scene for the New York Times. Her subsequent story, which ran in early January 2020, presented Thomas and his crew as the poster children for a new teenage dream, one where young fame seekers take control of their destinies and build social media careers from nothing in luxe mansions in the valley. Daytime television, including the Today Show, ran with it. And some of TikTok's biggest stars are now roommates in the wildly popular Hype House in Los Angeles. 
and, as they are wont to do, presented it as the latest new thing. This group of 20 talented content creators is part of a growing trend of young social media stars snapping up big real estate so they can physically be together to make videos 24-7. While Hype House wasn't an entirely new idea, its splashy debut proved content houses had the power to make people rich and famous overnight. Not just YouTube famous or TikTok famous, but famous famous. Its most popular members, Charlie, Huddy, and Addison, were fast-tracked to superstardom, signing on to Super Bowl commercials, record deals, and movie roles. The other members of this group benefited too. Their following skyrocketed. New brand deals were rolling in, and Hype House was signed to a major talent agency. In a matter of weeks, the makeshift collective was at the center of the Gen Z zeitgeist and had made a blueprint for success that every other aspiring creator could follow. And follow the blueprint they did. Here's Lauren Kettering, a teenager from Orange County who went viral on TikTok that summer. There was just a time where I was getting invited to all the houses. By all the houses, Lauren means collectives like Sway House, floppy-haired frat dudes, and The Vault, cheery, stylish teens. There were a lot cropping up then, each with a name more ridiculous than the next. The Kids Next Door, The Girls in the Valley, The Drip Crib, and of course, Click House where Leslie Golden landed as she was trying to get into the influencer scene. They were like amoebas, globbing on to one another for collaborations or attention, then disbanding to form new entities. And frankly, if I tried to tell you about each and every one of them, this episode would be the length of a Mark Marin podcast. The point is, Lauren spent a lot of time at the epicenter of it all. I was at Hype House for like a while. Like I made really good friends there. And it was a vibrant scene. When I was there, you know, I just see all the people my age that are doing the same things as me and it was really cool because, you know, obviously I ran into trouble like when I started like doing social media back home because people thought it was like weird or cringy or different, you know. So it was nice hanging out with people that like understood it and like did the same thing or like I could learn from. These houses were landing pads for freshman social media stars, making space for a whole spectrum of young people from different backgrounds and places. Like, Lauren was a high schooler and competitive dancer with super supportive parents, a typical suburban upbringing. And Leslie Golden was a little less privileged, had been through some tough times, and had ended up as an influencer as a means of upward mobility. Both were disciplined and ambitious, but two sides of the same coin, maybe? Together, I think their experiences can tell us a lot about the industry and how people get tangled up in it. So remember Lauren for later. Anyway, back to Hype House. Not only did it jumpstart a collaborative community of young creators in LA, it made mainstream media much more aware of the phenomenon that was TikTok. And with every bit of attention that Hype House the brand got, there came new questions about how exactly Hype House the business actually functioned. Forbes reporter Abe Brown was one of the people asking them. From the moment I heard about Hype House, my, um, you know, I've covered business journalism for almost a decade now. My initial, it just made my spider senses tingle. I wonder if they had agreements negotiated with each other. I wonder if they had formalized anything. I wonder if they had incorporated. I wonder what rules they put down for themselves in, in terms of how they're going to uh, develop this as a business. And it very quickly became clear that they hadn't. And that was going to, uh, that was going to be a problem for them. That's around the time that Daisy Keach, the founding member with the popular butt workouts, heard from her manager, Chris Young. Chris is a lawyer and businessman in his late 30s who dabbled in food and travel influencing himself, 
She'd met Daisy when she first moved to LA to launch her social media career and later became her manager. Daisy said he raised concerns about her ownership in the Hype House brand. She paraphrased their conversation in a now-deleted YouTube video. Then I get a call from my um, lawyer slash manager, and he told me, Daisy, aren't you a co-founder? Why You weren't given any recognition at all. All these news articles are saying that Thomas and Chase are the ones that started it. Chris told me he doesn't remember this call and only ever acted as Daisy's manager. And when I followed up with Daisy, she said she can't discuss her time at the Hype House for legal reasons. Whatever happened, on January 7th, 2020, just four days after that New York Times story ran, documents showed that Chris filed an application for the Hype House trademark. He told me it was at Daisy's request. It was under Daisy's name and Daisy's name only. My job really was just as manager to make sure that you know, Daisy, for the amount of money that she invested, had standing and protection. After that, she distanced herself from the members, both in real life and on social media. She vacationed in Anguilla for a week, flew to Miami to watch Jake Paul box, posted thirst traps with vague captions. You know, hot girl shit. Eventually, Thomas discovered the trademark application. According to his own deleted YouTube video, it was a huge betrayal. And this is when me and a lot of other people in this house did not trust Daisy anymore. Finally, the conflict came to a head one day when Daisy swung by the mansion to discover a music video shoot for a rapper named Lil Mosey in progress. And I walk in and there's this huge music video production. I go in my room and it it is swarmed with people and clothing racks and I'm like, what the hell is happening? I had no idea. So I confronted Thomas and I was like, yo, like what is happening here? You didn't even tell me about this. It was an ugly public confrontation. So ugly, in fact, that Thomas said he immediately held a Hype House meeting where the majority of the members voted Daisy out of the collective. She, in turn, hit back with a lawsuit. It alleged that Thomas and Huddy made brand deals without her, represented themselves as the sole co-founders of Hype House, and wrongly exiled her from the collective. The dispute would later be dismissed, which is probably the reason Daisy can't talk about it. But at the time, A. Brown got a tip about the conflict. They're teenagers and very young adults, and they're thrown into a high-pressure situation of competing monetary interests, which is really tough to deal with. I know how they should have done it. They should have sat down and gotten themselves all lawyers and hashed out who had equity, who was a founder, and been smart business people about it. But again, they're just kids. He spoke to Daisy just as she was removing some of her things from the original house. I remember being put on the phone with her and asking her to sort of describe the scene. And she said that she was at the Hype House. She was there with her lawyer. She was there with an armed guard, which I think speaks to the seriousness of the situation. Daisy was there to collect her things and leave. And there had been a lot of bad feelings and ill will dealt out between her and her co-founders. Was the armed guard necessary? I don't know. Was it a message that she and her new handler wanted to send? Absolutely. She outlined her dispute with Thomas and Chase Hudson, Lil Huddy. And we talked for a while about what had happened. We talked a little bit about her life journey, how she'd ended up in this situation. And then we talked a little bit about what she wanted to do next, which was to form her own collab house. 
It was called Clubhouse, and it would be based in a Beverly Hills mansion almost twice the size of the Hype House property. A mysterious investor was funding the venture. Abe put all of this into a story that ran in late March 2020. Soon after, a rivalry emerged. It was one super influencer house against the other. The public stage was set. The drama had officially begun. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Was all this Hype House drama as simple as two influencers getting in a fight that spills out online? Or were they taking a page from the movie studio playbook to defend and maybe even boost their personal brands? To answer that question, it's helpful to take a closer look at the modern media machine of the internet and how it's changed the way we consume and understand gossip. The business of gossip is a topic close to my heart because its boom times lined up nicely with my coming of age as a little media sentient terror. In the year 2000, Us Weekly went from a monthly magazine to a weekly one, and a handful of copycats followed. In touch, life and style, okay. You couldn't visit a grocery store or a dentist office without seeing a stack of these tabloids plastered with unflattering photos and shocking cover lines about celebrity feuds and weight loss miracles. And it was quite clear that many of the stars that ended up on these covers week to week, the Paris Hiltons and the Kim Kardashians, were cooperating in this media frenzy to some degree, even if others like the Amanda Bineses or the Britney Spearses seemed to be subsumed by it. As this market for celebrity gossip expanded to more and more obscure personalities, it moved online. This was the early days of Web 2.0, the social internet. And enterprising blogs turned the practice of casual celebrity recon into daily updates with plenty of long-lens paparazzi pics. 
Personalities like Perez Hilton drew millions of monthly views to their websites, profiting from young starlets' meltdowns and bad hair days. I personally remember logging onto a site every day, clicking through 25 photo slideshows and realizing my capacity for these kinds of updates was limitless. In hindsight though, it was also damaging. Here's Perez on CBS News talking about Britney Spears. 2007 was the year of the Hollywood girls gone wild. Britney kept you super busy. She was by far the person I wrote about the most on my website. I mean, she began the year in style in Las Vegas, passing out at a club. Shortly after that, went to rehab, left rehab, shaved her head, attacked the paparazzi, went back to rehab, had custody issues with Kevin Federline. I'm only halfway through the year and I'm already exhausted. <laughs> had more custody issues with Kevin Federline, had a disastrous VMA performance, released an album that that bombed, more custody drama. Thank you, Britney Spears. Being bad is good for my business. <laughs> oh, I know that. <laughs> then, around the mid-2010s, so-called tea accounts hit their stride. Unlike mainstream actors and musicians at the time, bloggers and viners lived on the internet. And even though their fan bases were really dedicated, these social media celebrities still flew under the radar of mainstream media coverage. So to fill in that void, fans started their own pages. Some were flattering accounts that worshipped an influencer. And others were so-called tea accounts that cobbled together any scrap of online evidence creators left behind to present scandalous narratives. A lot of the major tea accounts today are pretty bare-bones operations, each one run by one or two people who are making a living by compiling and disseminating gossip. Per Dennis Fitosa, a comedian who takes part in this online gossip network under the handle Deaf Noodles, the barrier to entry is low. You know, nowadays it's definitely been more decentralized. The way that the whole thing is kind of shaped up to be now, it's like there are a lot of different sources, right? You have websites, you have YouTube channels, you have uh, like massive Instagram pages. You also have, uh, you know, TikTok pages. Like anybody could do it as long as they have a social media page. You know, you don't need to have a magazine. You don't need to have a show on the radio. You you can do it yourself, basically. I think that's really what changed. When TikTokers came along, they supercharged internet gossip. The short-form nature of the app encouraged them to post constantly. They liked and commented and DM'd people with abandon. And their millions of followers, in turn, documented that activity and reposted it to fan accounts. Most crucially, they all hung out together. Watching them interact in these new content houses was like watching the real world unravel on your social media feed. Day by day, post by post. That's where the hook comes, where people develop a personal connection with the people that they're watching because then they start watching them doing these innocuous dance videos enough that they're like, okay, well, what's going on with their lives, you know? And then they start seeing, oh, wow, so they just went through this today. Oh, they just broke up with their girlfriend. Oh, wow, oh, I just broke up with my girlfriend, you know? So it's like, before, on YouTube, it was like you had to front load everything. You had to say, oh, this is happening to me. Like, you have to make a YouTube video, like an update video saying, I'm going through this, through that. But on TikTok, I feel like it's, it's more like you're watching the show happen. Maybe some of this drama is real. Maybe some of it's exaggerated. But the fact that it's publicly posted about is deliberate. Creators might not always enjoy being at the center of a feud as the entirety of the internet comments. In fact, it can be really bad for their relationships and mental health. But it's also part of the job to talk their audiences through what's happening to them in real time. And at least one positive side effect from these online sagas is that they keep creators' names in the larger public conversation. 
You could see that with this Hype House feud. By far, the most shared snippet on my feed at the time was an extremely quotable moment that came from Daisy's now-deleted YouTube tell-all. Fuck, bro. Another fucking fake friend in L.A. Dope. When Daisy and Thomas posted and deleted vlogs blaming one another for what happened, their videos immediately got chopped up and remixed across TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Fake friend. Dennis came in with the, I told you so. That makes absolute sense that no one in the house had any idea what the hell they were doing. Another channel, a tea account called Spillsesh, was outraged for Daisy. It's just ridiculous that she would have to be held responsible for anything that happened that damaged the property, but for her to not even get credit as a co-founder is just ridiculous. And at one point, there was even a diss track directed at Thomas. All these takes meant more exposure for both Daisy and Thomas and their respective content houses, because influencers have a symbiotic relationship with the gossip hounds of the internet. It doesn't matter if you're the hero or the villain of a situation. Even if a scandal results in lost brand deals, demonetization, or yes, being canceled, history and research has shown that as long as you can weather the criticism, being at the center of a scandal doesn't break your career, it makes it. There are always exceptions to this rule, but the end result is that both the gawkers and the gawkdat are incentivized to take their complaints to internet court, no matter how disturbing, dubious, or petty their disagreements may be. It might all seem so simple on the surface, but in reality, it's a complicated dance with a massive media ecosystem. It's helpful to keep all that in mind when considering the origins of Clubhouse, the influencer collective that Daisy Keach had broken off from Hype House to start. If Hype House was a model for how to maximize fame in the era of TikTok, Clubhouse was about to mimic that approach and exploit it for all it was worth. Long before her legal blowout went public, Daisy was considering an exit plan. My manager at the time, Chris Young, when I was leaving the Hype House, we kind of had the idea, you know, to start another content house. And he had this guy, Amir, basically he's an investor is what I was told. And um, we all just had a meeting and, you know, wanted to start this thing together. You might recall from episode one that Amir is a New Jersey real estate developer who recently landed in LA and was hoping to capitalize on the content house gold rush. He had a talent for wedging himself into the scene. I should say, I've reached out to Amir many times in the course of reporting this podcast to ask him all about this, and I haven't heard back. Thus far, he and Leslie Golden, the party model turned influencer who you also met in episode one, were building a collab house called Click House. But given the opportunity to work with a big name who was in the midst of a scandal, he scrapped the whole project to rebuild it in Daisy's image as Clubhouse. Since Daisy's stint at the Hype House ended in an ownership dispute, she says that in those initial meetings with Amir and Chris, she was eager to nail down her role and stake in the company. But at the same time, there was also this urgency to capitalize on all the attention she was receiving in that moment. I definitely tried to have a lot of those conversations. However, as you probably know, the situation of me starting the clubhouse versus leaving the other content house, it was very fast and it was very quick. It was like boom, boom, boom. Um, that was kind of like the window that I felt like I had. So 
It was really super unorganized. Chris Young was folded in as part of the management team. Daisy said she was assured she would be a decision maker in the company and that they would figure out all the other details later down the line. In the meantime, they had some rebranding to do. In concept, Clubhouse would be almost the exact same thing as the original ClickHouse, just more extravagant in every single way. Amir had the real estate part covered. He secured a 12,000-square-foot home on Summit Drive in Beverly Hills, not far from the storied women's club that had once hosted prestigious names like Amelia Earhart and Gloria Swanson. You might even say this was an ultra-modern iteration of that organization, just with more bikinis and lip fillers. John McDermott, a journalist who wrote about the collective at one point, got a full tour. I think the best way to describe the house is it's a place where you would see a porno shot. I mean, it's like big vaulted ceilings, very kind of an open space, but very gaudy furniture. There's a big disco ball, chandelier hanging in the foyer right when you get in there. In John's words, it was tacky, with a lot of modular features that looked like randomly assembled Legos. There was a big sunken courtyard with Roman sculptures and a modern pool. The kitchen was decked out. Big island in the middle, marble counters, a nice gas range. But of course, no one there was cooking. I mean, the kitchen was filled with Amazon boxes, McDonald's bags, uh, bags from Buca de Beppo. Inexplicably, there was an enormous portrait of George Washington in one of the main living rooms. Just uh, the symbolism of which I thought was... Pretty funny. Just the father of the country looking down at what capitalism hath wrought on our dear nation. Between 10 and 15 people were crashing there at all times. There was a staff of video guys who lived there and filmed the creators almost nonstop. On the talent side, they've recruited mostly female fitness personalities, with a few dudes to round out the lineup. They all brought along assistants and managers, so the place was buzzing with people. And Amir's lofty plans for the future made all their imaginations run wild. He wowed the production guys by purchasing over $50,000 worth of camera equipment, promised employees creative freedom, individual development, and plenty of resources to execute their projects. He even told the influencers of the house he could get them brand deals and teased a potential reality TV deal. Meanwhile, Leslie held on to her position as house manager, but not without some tension. As a newcomer in the industry, she'd hung her hopes and ego on this opportunity. Then, in the span of a month, her hard work was thrown out the window for a new, more famous personality. This was supposed to be her elevator to the top, but suddenly it was feeling a bit crowded. That transition of releasing Clubhouse was actually really hard for me because I was the one that started ClickHouse. And I didn't fight for this crazy rollout where it was like just surrounded by me, but Daisy being the one to leave Hype House, they wanted the story to be that she left Hype House and made her own house. Clear to me, at least, was that Amir wasn't interested in cultivating an empowering space for women so much as a cutthroat one. A business that prioritized big names and publicity stunts over building a stable, collaborative culture from the inside something one might argue that resembled Hollywood. And so the rollout was them kind of showing her giving a tour of the house and not it didn't really include much of the other creators. I remember her walking through and kind of just like showing a glimpse of each person here and there, but it was 
definitely dressed up to be her house because she left Hype House and they knew that that would play a big role in the media. What's up guys, I'm Daisy Keach and welcome to the clubhouse. I can confirm from watching this video way too many times that Daisy is indeed its main character. So this is the next chapter in my life. Basically, it's a collaborative household where we can all make content together. And I hope you guys are excited for what's to come. I won't recap the whole thing for you, but at one point she poses with a gaudy lion sculpture at the property's entrance. And I'm a Leo, so I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> Gavin Zenny, the videographer who had joined ClickHouse around the same time as Leslie, was reassigned to work on Clubhouse and moved into their new Beverly Hills location. He remembers the announcement generating buzz online and setting up a clear story. The narrative was that um, Daisy is the one that created the Hype House, and then um, Thomas is the one that kicked her out and like manipulated everything and like took money and took possession of the Hype House account. After she got kicked out, um, she decided to form her other house to kind of like compete against Thomas's house. From the outside looking in, this was a really compelling tale. After being burned by her male co-founders at the Hype House, Daisy had retaliated with a lawsuit demanding ownership for what was hers. Then she sashayed over to Beverly Hills to launch a glitzier competitor. All of this played into this influencer fantasy of glamorous creative independence. Daisy told me she couldn't quite process the spotlight she'd commanded. I remember it just being so like, whoa, like what is happening right now? Um, and I like almost didn't like realize the amount of eyes that like we had on us. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like real. I was like, holy crap. But as Daisy and the rest of the clubhouse members would soon discover, the public perception that they were calling the shots couldn't have been further from the truth. They weren't the founders of the company. They were the face of it. To Leslie and others on the inside, this rebrand signaled a power shift. Clubhouse was fashioning its own updated star system, and its owners were playing puppet master from behind the screen. It was all part of a much bigger plan, one that would monetize their content house in a way that no one had ever imagined before. On the next episode of This Blew Up. I didn't have as much say as I thought that I, I would. Every time something like this would come up, it would be told like, this is the industry, you know, like you've got to be moldable. It was kind of like Love Island or like some reality show where if you weren't voted, if you were in the lowest, like you're going to get kicked out. He always wanted to film everything. It was like, oh, you know, someone's having a mental breakdown because their mental health is being ruined from this place. Let's film it. I hated being in the same room as this man. Like, the worst feeling in the world, like being around this person. Thanks for listening to This Blew Up. If you're enjoying the pod, please, please, please take a moment to tell a friend about it. I don't even have close to the amount of followers as the influencers on this podcast. So your word of mouth is the most valuable promotional tool we've got. This Blow Up was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak. Its executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our story editors are Connor Nevins and Amanda Dobbins. The show was produced by me, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. Fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Special thanks to Erica Cervantes, who helped with research and early production. The theme song and some of the other music tracks you heard in this episode were composed by Devin Rinaldo. 
Other music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. Sound design by Kaya McMullen. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. Art direction by David Shoemaker. Illustration by Alicia Tenoyan. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.